team where Bradley Beal is their best player, but they're only also uh, asset that they could probably get something for if they trade him. A team that doesn't have a great deal of young talent in the tank. A team that's overextended in terms of contracts. Like what? What? What is the future? Is there any hope on the horizon? Uh, I would say that um, if there was a list of teams with hope in the NBA, that the Wizards would be right near the bottom. Um, wow. If not at the bottom. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, it's one of my favorite shows. We look back at the NBA season that was and the playoffs that are coming with athletic national NBA beat reporter Michael Lee. Also, I've got some choice words about paving paradise and putting up a parking lot. Also got some just stand up and just sit down awards and more. But first, let's go to Michael Lee. Uh, from the Michael Lee perspective, uh, Virginia Auburn, was it a foul? Was it not a foul? Do you call it? Do you not call it? Please break it down for us. It was a foul. I mean, it was the last shot, and he clipped him at the leg. Um, I don't really think there's much debate. I mean, it, you can say it shouldn't happen that late, but it, that's the most critical part of the game. Like, that's when uh, you can't really hold your whistle, especially if it affected the, the shot. I mean, if he had released the ball and he got clipped, I probably would have let it slide. But he clipped him right, right as he was releasing the ball, so that affected the shot. And, you know, there's a way to defend without getting under a guy. You know, mm-hmm. that's why they have those rules in place. To where you don't you don't slide under a guy while he while he's in the air. Uh, I mean, once once he left his feet, you know that that was where you just kind of back off. But he kept going into him, so that's a foul. That's a foul. People are so mad about it though. Talking about the double dribble beforehand that wasn't called. Well, that's a different that's a different situation, right? And the refs in that and the refs eyes are necessarily, not necessarily looking at the you know at the ball you know to that closely because it. In real time, you know, it probably didn't look like a double dribble. Like, if you think somebody deflects the ball and um, and the guy played it off so smoothly, he just kept going. So I, I could see how you can miss a call. But, um, you know, just because you miss a call doesn't, doesn't mean you just bail out from making other calls down the, down the road. Mm. I, I, I just feel like if you're Auburn, you know, yeah, you have a right to be upset because, you know, Auburn's never really been in that position. But... Um, mm-hmm. You know, so it's their opportunity to finally play for something meaningful. And it was taken away uh, in some respects. Um, you know, they've already lost their best player. Um, you know, they've already overcome so much just to be in the Final Four because they're Auburn. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, that's just, those, those are the breaks. I mean, uh, you know, you can't just say, well, this happened, so that shouldn't happen. I mean, the fact remains that there was a foul at the end, and I think the refs were right in making the call. Do you think refs in basketball should be situational in terms of how they call things, or do you think a foul is a foul is a foul whenever it takes place? I think it depends on what the, the foul is or what the situation is. Um, sometimes I'm like, oh, you don't call that in that situation. And it depends, like, uh, an illegal screen, like that that kind of thing, you know, at the end of a game, I think that's something you kind of just let go. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes, like, if there's a box out and guys are getting a little physical at the end of the game, like, I wouldn't call, like, a foul there. Um, like, there was a situation with the Warriors and the Timberwolves, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, at the end of the regular season where 
you know, they threw the lob pass, and it was like 10 feet higher than it needed to be. It was headed to the fifth row, and they called a foul on Kevin Durant. I don't think you called that foul, even though, yeah, he touched them, but, you know, it's almost, he had no chance of catching the ball, and he wasn't even going to have time to get the shot. So you got to think, like, what's what, what? how is me calling this foul? How, how Am I interjecting myself into this to show that I'm doing the right thing, or am I actually allowing the players to dictate what happens? And I think um, in that in this situation with with the um, Auburn Virginia, the ref made the right call. He wasn't he wasn't injecting himself into the situation. The players did determine what happened. The guy slid under him and bumped him as he took the shot. So he blew the whistle. Mm. There's something about it when it's college players where it just hurts a little bit more because he gets all the I mean, pain, none of the pay for committing that foul. Yeah, he's going to live with that uh, for the rest of his life. I mean, that that, don't, that that will never come back to him, and Auburn may never be in that position again or maybe generations before they're in that position again. So, yeah, it's going to hurt. But, you know, I also look at it on the flip side. You know, Virginia was a team that was a 16 – they lost to a 16 seed and had to deal with that for an entire year, and now they're in a position to win a national championship. So I think Bravo um, is just perseverance and uh, and just – understanding that adversity is going to hit you in life and it's not you know you know what what happens in that moment it's what happens after that moment and that's the sign of your character that's right so let's talk let's talk some nba here uh season's coming to a close what's the biggest gap between something that you thought was going to happen way back when in october versus what actually happened um there probably are a couple one is boston I thought that the Boston Celtics were going to easily just steamroll uh, the Eastern Conference. You know, after LeBron left, I thought they just had the edge and talent and coaching and that things were just going to be smooth and that all of these pieces coming back with Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward, it was just going to be just an easy transition. They're going to win 60 games and they were going to really present uh, a, a serious threat to the Warriors uh, when they got to the finals. Um, obviously, they've disappointed <laughs> to say to say the least um and there's been you know milwaukee's emergence Giannis's emergence um that that really took me by surprise um um <laughs> i'm laughing to myself because i remember we had this conversation with Chris to start it and um and i remember you were very high on the washington wizards <laughs> yes i was <laughs> you you Absolutely. were you were someone who thought they were going to be a top three team in the east and I disagree with you. Um, yes, I thought there did. would be at, at least three teams, at least three teams that are going to be better than them this year. I didn't realize there were going to be at least nine teams that are going to be better. Jeez. <laughs> um, I mean, I, 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 I did not, I did not think that they were going to be as bad as they were, and I did not think that this was. I did not go into this. I knew it was going to be sort of an all or nothing season in, in some respects, where you know they had to get 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 over that hump this year or it was going to be the end but I had no idea that it was going to be such a miserable season and you know I was around the Wizards during the year mm-hmm. um, that Gilbert and Javaris brought guns in the locker room and so I remember that season and just the misery of that season and the courtroom appearances and the plea agreements and just all the things and everybody being traded away and it was just really a depressing season I but 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 I feel like I feel like this one was I feel like this one this season 
was on par or just slightly below in terms of wow. the level of yeah the level of just disappointment um, and just the level of hopelessness that this season brought about. Um, for me, just as an observer and somebody who's been around them for a long time, I, I didn't know that 10 years later or however many years later, nine years later, that there would be another season that would be just as miserable. And I would say that this was it for the, for the Wizards. Yeah, if there was ever anybody who could write a magnum opus about the Wizards, it would be you, like looking <laughs> at them over the course of like a 10-year period and what went wrong. I just don't know what the audience would be beyond me. Exactly. I mean, I, I feel like I, I wrote a I wrote a column uh, after Ernie was dismissed, just about mm-hmm. uh, how um, <clears throat> how I remember, you know, the, in 2010, uh, there were two nights that just stood out to me um, that year because I remember it was, it was January 6th, and uh, I happened to be in New York that day, and um, and it was the day that Gilbert got suspended 50 games and for the rest of the season. Uh, and I was in Philadelphia the night before, and I remember how Gilbert had, you know, done the plate uh, finger guns with his teammates, and they made mm-hmm. a mockery of the whole situation. And then he said David Stern was mean in the press conference, and just sort of went on this whole kind of rampage. And he got suspended the next day, and um, and like it was late at night, I called Ernie to try to, you know, get a sense of like what was going on behind, like what happened, like why the league decided to do it. And, um, and so he called me on background that night and we wound up talking about that. And then we probably talked on the phone for about two, three hours, the longest conversation mm-hmm. I ever had with Ernie in the 15 years that I was around him. And it wasn't even just that we talked about basketball or Gilbert or anything else. Like I actually could just hear the fear and the uncertainty in his voice. You know, he was venting. He was just kind of, just talking about the situation and trying to understand why Gilbert and Javaris would do that and why they would put the organization in that position. And he was, you could just, you could just feel it. And I, and I, I kind of felt for him because I, I, I know that more than anything, he never thought that was coming. And there was so much going on with the organization at that time because, um, you know, a Poland had just passed a few months before uh, they were going through that transition with uh, Ted Leonsis about to take over as the owner. And so everyone was on edge, you know, like the last thing they needed was something this embarrassing for the franchise, and especially coming under Ernie's watch with a new owner coming in. He was like, he, I'm sure he was worried about like what was going to happen. Um, and then that night we just talked and I, I, I got the phone and I was like, wow, you know, talking to Ernie all these years, you know, you usually got like kind of surface answer service interviews. I was a nice guy, but that night I really felt like, wow, okay, he's starting to really feel this, you know? And I, and I really understood just the magnitude of what had happened, you know, beyond, like I said, the fact that these guys could have faced jail time for that, but just that it affected so many lives. Um, so, and then I remember, so huh? I was wondering, so what was your reaction then when you heard that? I mean, he obviously survived 2010, and then he gets dismissed after 16 years, one of the longest-serving general managers in the sport, longest-serving yeah. general manager in the Eastern <clears throat> Conference. Like, what, what, was your, what was your reaction? Well, again, I, I thought back to the, uh, that night and then another night in two, in, uh, on May 19, 2010, when they won the lottery. And that mm-hmm. same day, Taylor Jones announced that he was going to keep uh, Flip Saunders and Ernie as the GM and coach. 
and you could just see the relief and how happy he was that he was given a second chance and that he was going to have a chance to select John Wall. And, you know, I just remember the joy and that he was like empowered again. Like he had just, you know, been given this second life. Um, but when you think about those two nights and you think about nine years later where they are, um, a lot of the same, they repeated a lot of the same mistakes. Um, you know, they built, you know, the second Wizards team organically through the draft, whereas, you know, the, he built his first team through trades and free agency with Gilbert, Karan, Antoine. Um, and then, you know, but he, he built the team in a different way, but the team fell apart in the same way. Um, one by, you know, signing bets that didn't necessarily fit what they were trying to do, but mainly not establishing a culture of accountability that players would show up and be professionals and do their job at the at the level they should and without, you know, and I think that was one of the mistakes that this whole regime made was that players, if you're stars especially, there was just a different set of rules that work for you than for other players. And, and I think that not having a coach in place who was going to hold these guys accountable and challenge them and really force them to not just be good basketball players, but just be leaders, you know, and just go beyond just what you do on the floor, not be obsessed with statistics and just trying to do whatever it takes to win. Um, I think that that sort of permeated through both eras, um, you know, of, 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 you know, Ernie's regime and they didn't learn a lesson, you know, I mean, obviously it didn't get to the point where guns were in the locker room, but you had that embarrassing practice and then you had, just a lot of things that just made you slap your head and say, what is going on with this team? And I think that if they had, you know, after be give, after being given a second chance to rebuild a team, if they had just done more um, to one have coaches in place who were going to hold players accountable and to also, um, you know, not allow things to slide, um, they wouldn't have been in a position – where they wound up having such a miserable season and now Ernie lost his job. So what are the future prospects for this team? A team where John Wall uh, is coming back probably at the end of next season with the torn Achilles, a team where Bradley Beal is their best player, but they're only also uh, asset that they could probably get something for if they trade him, a team that doesn't have a great deal of young talent in the tank, a team that's overextended in terms of contracts. Like what, what what is the future? Is there any hope on the horizon? Uh, I would say that um, if there was a list of teams with hope in the NBA, that the Wizards would be right near the bottom. Um, wow! If not at the bottom, they are one of the few teams. That's the that clip we'll play at the start of this interview. Looking, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, when you just think about looking forward, um, where's the hope coming from? If you're a DM that's about to take the job, you know that you have a rebuild that's that's going to be difficult because you're basically hamstrung with a 50 to 60 million dollar budget and to build a team knowing that 40 million of your cap is going to be um, eaten up by a guy who may have already played his best basketball and that's 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 what's sad for me um you know because it's not even just about uh the team aspect i feel bad for john wall because mm-hmm. you know this is a guy that's already lost half of last season lost pretty much all of this season, probably going to lose all the next season. That's three years of his prime stripped away. That's like he's played basketball. Um, you know, this was – he's going into his, what, uh, 
ninth or tenth season next year. Mm-hmm. He's already, um, you know, he, that that's when your prime is when you're supposed to really incorporate all that you learn, that you're physical, that you're physically at your peak, that everything kind of aligns and you and you see your best basketball. We won't see that period of John Wall's career, and you know, for him to come back from an Achilles injury. Um, you know, you've seen Kobe do it. You saw Dominique Wilkins do it. You saw his his buddy DeMarcus Cousins do it. Rudy Gay's done it. But they weren't guys who just were just speed demons whose athleticism were what carried them through. John's going to have to adjust his game. He's going to have to figure out another way to be effective um, to, to, to um, you know, justify the, the salary he's going to be making in the next couple of years. And that's tough. Um, that's why the one thing that disappointed me about this season from a basketball perspective for the Wizards is they didn't have any foresight to think beyond this season, to think Mm -hmm. that, you know, this team is not going to make the playoffs. It doesn't matter what moves we make. So we need to think about how we're going to build a team going forward. They traded out O'Porter and Kelly Oubre, two guys who could have been, you know, part of their future. They traded both of them for cap space, which is just uh, mind boggling. They got nothing in return, no picks, nothing. They traded. They didn't trade Jeff Green when he would have gotten them something um, from a t- from a better. I mean, from a team that's trying to win something. They didn't trade Trevor Reza. Like think about what the Lakers gave up to get like Mike Muscala, right? Mm-hmm. They gave up you know a really quality future big man. They gave up you know all of these pieces. Uh, they were willing to give up the world for Anthony Davis. If they would have had a chance to get Tre- Trevor Reza, I'm sure they would have given up something of value just to make a run at the, at the playoffs this year because it meant a lot more for the Lakers because they were actually, they had LeBron, you know. Um, they didn't they didn't, they didn't didn't trade, you know, Trevor Ariza. He would have brought back something. So you squandered what could have, what your, your, your prime asset and get, got nothing but cash space in return. You had two other veterans who really aren't going to serve you any good beyond this year. And even this year, we're going to do much for you. You could have got some of value for them, and you did nothing but sit on your hands. So if I'm the Wizards and I'm thinking of moving ahead, I have to think about building a team on guys on rookie deals who aren't going to be expensive. Um, And in some ways, you're probably going to have to wind up sacrificing Brad because, you know, paying him $27 million, you know, and paying Jan $16 million and paying – all these guys, all this money, you're eating up all the limited cash space that you have to build a team anyway. So if you just trade everybody, you blow everything up, you detonate it, knowing that John probably won't come back next season. He may come back to the next season, but he may not be, you know, what he once was. So you have to plan accordingly. Have guys on rookie deals who can give you quality production at low at low cost, and then expect that when John's contract expires um, four years from now, that these guys will be up ready for their extensions and you can start moving forward. And you basically have to build around the fact that you don't know if your star player is going to be a star ever again. Yeah. That, whew, talking to Michael that's, that's, Lee. That's, that's no hope, from man. From the athletic. That's, this is, this is grim. This is very oh, grim, man. and it's it's in a, it's a, it's a town that if we had a big time perennial fifty game winning basketball team, this would be a basketball town to the nth degree. 
Oh, for I mean, sure. When, when you think about the high school scene here, the college scene here, the AAU scene here, I mean, this town is aching to become a basketball town. And it's going to take a long time if that ever happens. I know. Painful. And that's sad. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. So, so let me ask you this, though. Who's sillier, honestly? Me for thinking that the Wizards could gel and make the playoffs or all the big-time commentators, and I could, I could name names to this, uh, who looked at the Lakers before this season, looked at their Vegas win total, because before the win total, the Vegas over-under on the Lakers' wins this year was 48.5. And a lot of folks, people like the, uh, Bill Simmons of this world, said this was the easiest money in the world. LeBron is always a lock to win 50, and you put money on the Lakers doing the over of the 48.5. How, you know, and this is a team, of course, like you look at it in retrospect, and you look at the JaVale McGee, Lance Stevenson, uh, Michael Beasley, you look at the pieces they were putting around him and expecting him to win 50 games, a bunch of young kids who'd never really played meaningful games. Like, how bullish were you on the Lakers at the start of this year, and how surprised are you at a play a, a LeBronless playoffs, which is what we're looking at. Um, I was surprised that they didn't win. Um, I thought they were going to be a playoff team. Um, I didn't think they would be much higher than I thought they'd be like six, six to eight. Um, you know, and then over the course of the season when they started playing pretty well, I was like, wow. Um, no matter what seed they get, they didn't need to be afraid of anybody else in the West. Um, but you know, there were so many things that happened that knocked them off course that it's really tough to say that they just flopped because they just underachieved. I don't necessarily think that happened. I think that guys got injured. Um, a lot of fluky things happened, you know, from the the fight, you know, or, you know, um, Rondo and uh, Brandon Ingram got suspended um, to, to LeBron's groin injury. I mean, this is a guy who never got hurt. He hasn't ever missed this many games in his entire career. Um, so that was unusual. Um, and I mean, I guess father time hits everybody, but we've watched LeBron just do amazing things over the last couple of years that defied his age. You know, he's, he's doing dunks that guys be reminiscent about, you know, he's still doing them, um, at 34. So for him to get hurt, um, that was not something that any, I, I, I fully anticipated. I, I didn't see that happening. Um, and then the Anthony Davis situation, uh, that was a huge wrench into this entire season. Like, it just sabotaged everything. It sabotaged two franchises, because and, and, and Anthony Davis in a lot of ways. Like, I can't think of a great player, top five talent, who was more irrelevant after the all-star break than he was. Like, it didn't, like I don't even think he – I had no games that registered with me until like just recently when he flipped somebody a finger, you know, walking off mm-hmm. the court, you know, that's the only time he stood up at any point. Um, because I think that they just totally misplayed their hand without realizing that the, the Pelicans had all the cards, you know, like uh, you can't just have a guy demand a trade and then expect the trade to happen. You know, um, that should have been done either behind closed doors, quietly, discreetly, and it could have been handled, I think, in, much, in a little cleaner manner. Um, I think that overall, the people in New Orleans, from the minute he fired, you know, his longtime agent, uh, Dad Fouchet, and then wound up hiring uh, Rich Paul, um, they they knew that something was in the works. They knew that this was that was his power move, and they just didn't know how it was going to be executed. But once it did, it just totally just 
dismantled the Lakers and what they were building because in their eyes, even though he may or may not have had any role in it, the fact that LeBron is also seen as one of the most powerful players in basketball, um, he sort of looks like he's part of management. So when he's not coming out and saying that I'm going to ride with the guys that I have and we're going to go out there and we're going to compete, I don't care what, what the front office does. If he says that, that goes a much further away than saying, oh, man, it would be amazing to play with Anthony Davis. And it may have been an innocent thing to say, but when you have young guys who are fragile and don't quite understand their their future with the organization, in the back of them, their mind, they already don't trust that you want to play with them because they know that based on your past experience of you know making the eight straight finals, you love playing with veterans. Love playing with all stars, and we're neither. So now you're campaigning for, uh, I mean, openly campaigning for a guy. Do you really want to play with me? And I think that LeBron sort of underestimated that. And looking back, um, a couple things LeBron did, I think that he miscalculated. Um, one, he didn't understand his teammates, but two, he didn't understand LA. He mm-hmm. thought that LA was Hollywood. He thought that that was getting all the rappers and all the movie stars and TV stars all at the games. And that's he's thinking about his visits to the Lakers games and knowing that all these people were happy to see him play, these celebrities. But the Lakers are L.A. And L.A. is, you know, that's going to Crenshaw, man. L.A. is going to, to East L.A. You know, that's that's like you've you, you got to go to areas where the Lakers represent the entire community. You know, Hollywood is just one small faction. That's one small part. But the real, like, they they ride, they ride, they ride for the Lakers. You know, mm-hmm. whether they're good or bad, and they love their Lakers. They love their legends. And you have to find a way to to appeal to them because they didn't care one bit what LeBron did for Cleveland or Miami. That meant nothing when it meant when it stood with his Laker legacy. So he had to like let them know that, hey, I'm here. I'm here to win championships. And I think if they doubt that, they're going to question what you're all about. And that's what happened. And that hurt them, too. So I think that um, if LeBron had come in and really embraced all of L.A. and made it seem like he was there for the people of L.A., then I think that things may have gone differently in terms of perception. But I think, you know, all year, a lot of Laker fans were like, well, he's not Kobe. And I'm not going to yeah. give him his props until he, you know, does some, some Kobe-type stuff. And he, he wasn't able to do that Kobe-type stuff. So they turned on him quickly. Um, so uh, I'm interested to see how he responds and how he comes back from that from a public relations standpoint. Um, I'm pretty sure he's learned some valuable lessons. I'm pretty sure he's going to go out of his way this summer to make L.A. fans know it. You know what what he's all about. That goes beyond some say Space Jam or producing movies or TV shows or anything else. I think that he's going to have to, you know, really like um, do some sort of community events, you know, to let people know that that he's down with with LA and not just all the celebrities. Wow, and this is a year I think we also saw some of the limits of player power. I mean, there was this all-encompassing narrative going into this yeah. year about LeBron just bending the league to his will, using Rich Paul to make moves behind the scenes, and I felt like you saw a lot of the NBA establishment sort of bite back at that, and it played a role in sabotaging this season for the Lakers. 
Yeah, it did. Um, and I, I think that, um, you know, in some ways, you know, owners, had, I mean, the Pelicans owners in particular, they had to do a serious flex, you know, to mm-hmm. say that, you know, we appreciate, you know, uh, what you're trying to do here and getting, you know, one of the top five players in the game, but understand that he's under contract with us. You know, he's ours until we decide he's not, and we don't want to get rid of him. Not not like this. And um, and I think that, you know, like I said, when I said they overplayed their hand, it was just it was just a bad way to go about doing it. Um, and it was so, it was so public, you know. That was the other thing. And I think we usually see players get what they want, you know, for a long time. You know, I remember when Carmelo, Carmelo Anthony, you know, demanded his trade. Chris Paul demanded his trade. You know, Dwight Howard demanded his trade. You go down the list of guys who demanded trade. Typically, they wind up getting what they want, and they wind up going where they wanted. But you know, if you look at what's happened in the past year or two, Paul George said, "Hey, trade me. I want to go to the Lakers." And what happened? He wound up going to Oklahoma City. You know, Kawhi Leonard's like, hey, trade me mm-hmm. back to L.A. I want to go home. Just trade me home. Whatever you do, trade me home. They're like, oh, you want to go home? How about we send you to the coldest city in uh, <laughs> in the NBA? Go to Toronto. Now, he, now, obviously, landed in a good place, but he didn't want to go to Toronto. And um, so he wound up going to Toronto. Um, so teams are like, they're listening to these guys, and they're saying, okay, you want you don't want to play here? Then we're going to dictate the terms of where you play next, and you're going to have to decide for yourself. Do I want to play for three teams in three years? Do I want to constantly move around my family and, and have no stability? And I think you saw Paul George. He stayed in Oklahoma City. You know, being moving around was not something he wanted to do. Um, it'd be interesting to see what Kawhi does. He may just go to L.A. because he wants to go there no matter what. But if Toronto has a deep playoff run and maybe they get to the finals or they even win the whole thing, he's gonna, is he really going to walk away from that? I don't know. But – um, I think teams are starting to dictate terms now, and um, it's interesting to see what happens, especially with the Pelicans saying, yeah, we might trade you this, but we're not going to trade you to the Lakers. <laughs> we're probably going to wait and see what Boston does this summer, and if we get they give us what we want, we're going to send you there, and you're going to deal with it. And I think that's what Anthony Davis sort of realized himself, that, okay, I want to I wanna make a power move. I want to take control of my destiny. And... Um, and they said, yeah, you can do that when you hit for agency or we'll, t- we'll determine where you go. And so I think they're kind of taking the power back. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you mentioned uh, the Raptors and the possibility of them having a deep run and whether or not that could influence what Ka- Kawhi does. Well, what are your predictions in terms of who's coming out of the East and who's coming out of the West? Are the Celtics gelling at the right time? Does Milwaukee actually impress you? Uh, the Philly, yeah. the Philadelphia 76ers, they've got probably the best starting five in the East. I mean, there, there's a <laughs> my goodness. And I didn't, did I even, I didn't even mention the Raptors other than saying, you know, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of teams that look very serious coming out of the East. Who do you like coming out of the East? You know, I, I've said Boston from the beginning <laughs> and I just don't want to jump off the bandwagon, especially if Boston does get it together and they say, well, yeah, I was with them all along. I'm just going to stay with them. Mm-hmm. And now I look like a fool until they get eliminated. And they get eliminated. Um, you know, but I think that if I had to rank them, and I've sort of been saying this a lot, if I had to rank them, who I think is going to come out of the East, I think just from a time perspective, I still am leaning towards Boston, that they're going to come out of the East. My second pick would be Toronto, um, primarily because, They've been able to, you know, have a really smooth, you know, season, you know, 
despite having low manage, you know, Kawhi Leonard a lot, give him his rest, make sure he's healthy. But the development of Pascal Siakam, you know, that's just been tremendous. Um, I think he's the clear-cut, most improved player. Uh, I don't know if fans necessarily understand how he went from being a guy who it'd be nice to get a contribution from to like, oh, snap, this guy might be the most versatile, most important player on our team. You know, that that to me is a huge leap, and I think he's he's made a huge leap on a on a legit championship contender. Um, and then when you get to um, just the fact that they've been to the finals, I mean, conference finals in recent years, they have Kawhi and Danny Green who have championships. They have Mark Saw now who's been to the conference finals. They can play, you know, any way you want it. They can go small. They can go big. So I just like what they're doing next. Um, and then I go on Milwaukee. Um, they're a team I've been sleeping on a lot uh, most of the year, and primarily because they haven't won a playoff series in 18 years. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. They have not won a playoff series in 18 years. We've got to go back to Big Dog, Sam Cassell, Ray Allen, and we got to go all the way back to when they lost to the um, 76ers in the conference finals. Like, that's how far you got to go back. You know, you know the GM was of that team? Ernie Grunfeld. That's how Ernie far Grunfeld. you got to go. You got to right. go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You got to go back to that. Um, that's, how, that's how long ago it's been since they, they've been to the uh, – they won a playoff series. So, but – They've been steady, you know, and that's one of the things that you cannot overlook in life, in basketball, and anything. If you're consistent, if you show up every day and people know what they're going to get from you and you're dependable, that's the team that is that you can trust, you know, and I, I think I'm, I've developed more trust by the bucks of the season that's gone along because they're steady. They don't get they don't get all caught up in anything. Like, they don't get emotional, overly emotional about wins or losses. Um, if they lose a game, they make sure they don't lose two in a row. Um, they go out there. Um, Giannis is taking on the challenge. He's got this edge to him. And I've, I've been around him uh, like a little bit over his entire career. I remember when he was the, the humble you know, kid who just couldn't believe how good smoothies tasted, you know, to now mm-hmm. he's a cutthroat killer. Like he just wants to destroy everybody in front of him. And, um, you know, he's he's from Europe. And so he doesn't have that AAU mentality. He never he doesn't play for like a team USA. So it's not like he's trying to line up his future teammates down the road. Like he only cares about everybody that's in that Milwaukee uniform. And he wants to, you know, just beat everybody who's not wearing that uniform. So he's fiercely competitive. And uh I remember Kobe had challenged him to be MVP a few years ago and um oh, before last year, before last season. And He's really taking it apart. He's to believe he's capable of it. And I think he's a clear-cut MVP this year, too. I know Harden is having a phenomenal year, but I think that um, just the whole season, Giannis has been the best player. On the Giannis best. is your choice? Giannis is your MVP choice? Uh, yeah, we can discuss that later, too. But, yeah, that, he's my MVP. And, and then, so I got Milwaukee third. And then I got Philadelphia fourth. But I don't even know if I really want to put them in the conversation because – they have a really talented start to five, but they only are able to play 10 games together, um, you know, this season. And that's not enough, I think, to develop the trust and to develop uh, the chemistry that you're going to need come playoff time. Because if there's anything that exposes your flaws more than a seven-game series, I don't know what it is. And they don't exactly know what their strengths or weaknesses are right now. <laughs> and they don't really know who to rely on, who's going to get them 
Um, you know, they assume Jimmy Butler would be the closer, but what if Joel Embiid wants to do that? Or what if Tobias Harris feels like he should do it? Or what if J.J. Reddick's like, hey, I'm the best shooter here, I should do it? Or what if Ben Simmons is like, hey, I'm the future, um, I, I need to get my shine. So if, if they're, they're going to be five individuals out there, you know, going into the playoffs, things could splinter and get ugly quickly. But if they're going to somehow magically snap their finger in jail – in the playoffs, they could be a really intriguing team, but uh, it's just hard to put trust. You haven't seen enough um, enough to really believe in. So that's 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 my rankings, and uh, I didn't I left out Indiana just because I think that without Oladipo, I don't see them um, making much noise in the playoffs. But um, but that's that's just what that's the way I see them shaking up. But nobody wants to play Indiana either. Um, no, because they defend and they get nasty and yeah. they get grimy and they, they do things that make you uncomfortable. So I, I love lose. what he's doing. Oh yeah, yeah. But you're going, you're going, you're going to wind up with some, uh, some thorns and, and splinters mm-hmm. and all things inside on your rear end, you know, in the process of winning that series. Yeah. Nate McMillan is my coach of the year and I don't see how anybody else, I mean, maybe Budenholzer, but I just feel like what Nate McMillan's done, even if Oladipo had stayed healthy. Uh, would have been something to merit him consideration. Yeah, I think I think people slept on his candidacy last year. I think he really deserved to get a lot more um, props last season. Um, but I, I think it's a really tough um, call on Coach of the Year this year. And you know, and I think Nate definitely is, is, is in the running and is deserving. And I wouldn't be upset if he got it. Um, but I remember when Oladipo got hurt. And people were dismissing them. They didn't think they they thought they'd fall down to six or seven or something. They said, "Oh, this season's over." And I remember asking, "I was like, well, um, what was your impression of the Pacers when they traded Paul George? Did you think they were going to be a playoff team? Or did you think they were rebuilding? Most people thought they were rebuilding, but our perception of Victor Oladipo changed greatly because of Nate McMillan's coaching and the fact that he empowered him. And so when he went down, he basically just empowered everybody else, and that's why they stayed relevant even though he went down. So I give him a lot of props, but the other coaches I'm considering, like you said, Budenholzer for what he's done in Milwaukee and just giving them some stability. Um, Mike Malone in Denver. I mean, yes. I don't think anybody saw them being the number two seed in the Western Conference this year at the midst of the playoffs last year. I think he's a guy that's going to be consideration for Coach of the Year. Doc Rivers with the Clippers. I mean, <laughs> they traded their best player each of the last two seasons at the trade deadline, and now they're in a position to make it to the playoffs now. Um, that That's that's phenomenal. Um, I don't think anybody saw them as anything other than the second-best team in L.A., but they're going to be the team that goes to the playoffs as opposed to the Lakers. I don't know who put money on that, but whoever did, they're they going to walk out with some with some nice uh, nice, <laughs> oh, yeah. some nice uh, money, you know, going forward. Um, so I think he's a consideration. Uh, as as well, so there there've been some really good coaching jobs this year, and um, but I I, I like Nate, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if any of those other guys who I mentioned um could get some consideration as well. Now, uh, we man, there's so much to talk I talk about here. Yeah, you, so we I'm, got who you're coming out of the East. Uh, who do you got coming out of the West? I mean, there obviously the question is: Do you take? It's like Tiger Woods versus the field. Do you take the Warriors or do you like the? If you had to make a bet on the Warriors or the field, who do you bet on? Uh, more with the Warriors. <laughs> uh, over the you know, field, I, over all yeah. of these combinations that could conceivably take them down in seven games. Yep. 
Um, I just feel like they have so much going on their um, side. I feel like they have so much on their side um, from a talent perspective that, you know, it's going to be really hard for them to, to go down. Um, it's going to be very difficult for them to be defeated four times. Um, I, just, I just think that they come with not one MVP. They have two MVPs. And they have two other, three other all-stars on that squad. And they have DeMarcus Cousins, who's been waiting his entire career for the opportunity to be in the postseason. And he's going to be a free agent, so you know he's trying to get paid. I don't see any way he goes out there and doesn't do everything in his power to just destroy everybody this this, uh, postseason. I think he's going to come in with a huge shift as as there. And I think they are able to constantly make that adjustment when everyone else is catching up to what they just did, you know. You know, when when LeBron and uh, led that three one comeback, it was like, oh wow, okay, they they caught up with the Warriors, and they're like, oh, you know what? How about his Kevin Durant, y'all? <laughs> we got mm-hmm. Kevin Durant for you. What you gonna do with that? Nothing. Just get the book demolished. And then you know the uh, Houston Rockets pushes push them to seven games, and it's like, oh, well, they might be catching up with them. And they come up and they they get the Marcus Cousins, through <laughs> one of the most flukish. Um, you know, uh, off seasons, free agent off seasons that we can remember just come off the Achilles injury, and now they have a healthy Demarcus Cousins going into the postseason. So everyone else adjusted to that old that that, that they adjusted to the just the uh, the Curry led team. Then they got Curry and Durant. Now they got Curry, Durant, Cousins, and everybody else. And uh, so I, I feel like they're going to wind up coming out of the West and winning it again um, because it's tough to make these kind of deep runs and they're about to possibly go to the finals for five straight years, but they're about to do it with third different team. You know, the core guys are still there, but they've gotten some serious <laughs> supplements from uh, a guy like Durant and now Cousins who help elevate the talent base of that team and, and give them something they can lean on um, against other teams that just might have one star, might have two stars, but definitely don't have five. Aren't they just the most the the unhappiest dynasty we've ever seen? Maybe in any sport. They can't. They play with so much joy, and that's um, something that can't be discounted. You know, I mean, they've had their moments. You know, guys. You know, you saw Draymond and KD had their incident. You know, where you know Draymond was cursing out Kevin during the game, but they were able to get past that. And you know, there's been all these rumors and speculation and. Uh, people saying that Kevin's done, he's gone after this year, and that he's out of there. And I think they sort of been like, okay, he might be leaving this summer, but he's still with us now, so let's go ahead and get this last chip together, and then we'll figure out where we go from there. And I think they've all sort of taken on that attitude that, you know, no matter what happens in the future, we can still win this championship this year and have everybody look back and be like, yeah, that might have been one of the baddest teams we've ever seen in NBA history. Might have been the baddest. So yeah. um, I think when you look at just uh, what they're trying to accomplish, winning four championships in five years in this era of basketball, um, I just I just think it would just be a phenomenal accomplishment. Um, the super duperist, the super team. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, they'll be one, that, at least for me, if they win another title, I will think of them fondly. I know that they get they um, generate a lot of hate, but I, I just think it's what they've done should be an example for every franchise for how you build a contender without necessarily 
bottoming out and tanking just to get a number one pick. You know, they built the team organically with a number seven pick of Steph Curry, a number 11 pick in Clay Thompson, and a number 35 pick in Draymond Green. And they were able to do all that. Um, and then build, build a culture that was so appealing that they attracted the best free agent available, Kevin Durant. And then had a culture that was so uh, accommodating that the best, arguably the best big man in the game was like, you know what, I think I can go there and not disrupt things. And and I, I think so. This is it's a truly special thing that we're witnessing. And uh, I wish fans just weren't so upset with whatever, like Kevin Durant leaving, um, which I did, I never had a problem with because um, um, I understood where he's coming from. And I, I just dropped this um, piece like, you know, everybody's mad at Kevin for sort of making the Warriors unfair, but they sort of forgot that Kevin left the team that was supposed to be unfair. You know, like he was on a team that had three future MVPs and they traded one of them. And so in his mind, he was supposed to be a part of that in Oklahoma City. That team was supposed to be a dynasty. The Warriors are what the Thunder was supposed to be. And, you know, so him leaving to go join the Warriors is not something that's, like, unusual for him. He was supposed to be on a team that had this many All-Stars and this many great players. Um, That was taken away from him. And no one really blames the ownership for the Thunder for being too cheap to pay the luxury tax one year on James Harden. They're like, oh, Kevin's just a snake. Kevin's this and that. Now, Kevin did what was in his best interest because the organization that he played for did was in their best interest and they took that team back. They went to the finals, never returned. And that is Kevin's fault, I guess. And when I look at it, James Harden is in the running for his second MVP in a row and has might wind up finish at least in the top two for the third time in <laughs> four years. And Kevin's supposed to sit back and take all that heat. I think people need to start evaluating what happens sometimes when uh, organizations make mistakes and they have to pay the price. Mm. So let me ask you this: What team do you see having the best shot at beating the Warriors? If you had to, if if say you had to pick one team, well, I, I go with Houston um, just because they've they've proven before that they can they can they can push them onto the edge. I mean, they're up three two. In the conference finals last season, um, there Chris Paul doesn't get hurt at the end of that game. Who knows? Maybe they they go ahead and close them out in Game Six, or definitely close them out in a Game Seven. So they were right there. They're a different team this year, um, but I think that they're a deeper team this year. Um, I think that James Harden is playing at a phenomenal level. Um, the one thing we're still waiting on is that, sort of having that signature James Harden playoff run. He really been able to put up these great regular seasons without necessarily having a postseason resume that that matches all this this greatness. I think that's that's one of the reasons why um, you know people like what he's doing, but there isn't like this universal praise for what he's been able to accomplish because everyone knows that this is what he does in the regular season. That you know. He can manipulate the game and, and the referees and generate fouls and and uh, get to the free throw line. But those those whistles aren't there for him in the playoffs, so he's got to adjust. And I'm interested to see what kind of adjustment he makes, you know, come this postseason. But I'm leaning 
more towards Houston. Um, Chris Paul isn't as good as he was last year, but I think that, you know, adding to Austin Rivers, adding to Kent Reed, you know, um, adding, you know, just guys that they, they've added over, over the course of this season in particular, um, it makes them a threat, and they've caught fire at the right time. Mm. So you've been so generous with your time, but before you go, I got to ask you, Paul Pierce, Dwayne Wade, <laughs> you got to comment on this. I mean, Paul Pierce putting it out there that he's better than my son's all-time favorite player, Dwayne Wade, that he had a better career than Dwayne Wade, that he was a better player than Dwayne Wade, that he would take himself over Dwayne Wade. Please, Michael Lee, your thoughts. Um. Okay, well, let me just say this to start. I do not agree with Paul Pierce. I do not think he had a better career than Dwayne Wade. However, oh my, I do not have a problem with Paul Pierce thinking that he was better than any player of his of his era. Because what people don't understand and what people don't need to recognize about really highly competitive athletes is that they have a sense of themselves that's often overinflated and it's necessary for them to achieve greatness. Um, Paul Pierce was this chubby, out-of-shape kid from Inglewood with an S-curl, right? But had skill, had incredible footwork, had a, a wicked fadeaway, you know, and he was called the truth for a reason. And that's the edited version. That's the, the G-rated version. You know, Paul, back in 01, I don't know if people fans know this story, but back in 2001, the Celtics went to L.A. Paul Pierce gave the Lakers 42 points that night and they won and afterward the Celtics beat writers went over to to uh, talk to Shaq and Shaq called over a long time Celtics uh, strive uh, Steve Bullpet put him over and said okay put this down Paul Pierce is the mother effing truth mm-hmm. and that's when he became the truth because Shaq called him the MFing truth so that didn't just happen by chance. And and if you're Paul Pierce and you competed against Kobe and you and you got a ring off Kobe, you competed against LeBron and you beat him twice in the playoffs and you didn't lose to him till you were over over thirty. You didn't you didn't really lose to him till you were past your prime. You're gonna think you're better. If you beat Dwayne Wade, uh, I think they won in five games and maybe even swept him, you're gonna think you're better. Because you got you beat these guys, so if you go head to head against these guys, you're not going to sell yourself short. And Paul Pierce, you know, second all time on the Celtics scoring list, um, got stabbed, nearly almost died, survived mm-hmm. that. You know, this takes this guy has a lot of mental strength. This guy thought he was the best every time he stepped on the floor. There's a reason why they they just destroyed the Lakers in '08 when they had Kobe. He's out there winning Finals MVP head to head against Kobe. There's a reason why when they play when he played LeBron in '08 and they had that classic duel where they both top 40 and, and he he got the win. That he wasn't taking he wasn't taking a backseat to anybody, and I, I appreciate the fact that he didn't take a backseat to this. I, and and people could say he's crazy. People say he's being disrespectful. I think he's just being Paul Pierce because to be an elite champion type player you have to have a certain mentality 
and, and a lot of these guys, you know, they, they turn on this, this kind of fake humble thing where it's like, oh, you know, he was so much better than I was. They don't really believe that. They just say that because they know it sounds nice and try to go work well with, with fans. But um, I just want fans to know that Paul Pierce, you know, while, like I said, Dwayne had a better career. Paul Pierce is entitled to his opinion because in his mind, he knows that when it came down to it, when he was in his prime, and when he finally got help, you know, think about this. Paul didn't have, like, a Hall of Famer who was near his prime playing with him until his ninth year in the league. And when he did it, he won a championship right away and went to the finals two of those three years. So why would he think that if I had Kevin Garnett and Bray Allen at 27 or 26 instead of 30 that I wouldn't have championships? I mean, I, I'm just – I'm just stepping into his head and thinking like him. So he's not foolish for thinking that way. And I, I give him props. You know, it's like uh, my man Fife Dog used to say, he said, I don't, I'm on my own jock still. Because if, if I don't say I'm the best, tell me who the hell will. That's that's the mentality you got to have to be at that level. So fans can crack all the jokes they want. They can clown them all they want. And you can throw up all the stats you want and all the all-NBA lists and all that stuff. Yeah, okay. What happened when we went head to head? And that 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 was Paul's mentality. And that's why he was a great player. He wouldn't have been that great if he didn't think he was the best. Damn. Well, preach Michael Lee. Now <laughs> <laughs> I got that was you got very into that. I appreciate that. Oh uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned Fife Dog. Uh just you've been so generous with your time. I appreciate it. I yeah, wanna no, ask cool. you though, what kind of music you're listening to these days? Uh, well, I mean, R.I.P. I've been listening, catching up on Nipsey. Pull up in motor case. I got a show today. It's all I'm trying to do. Hustle and motivate. Choppers are throw away. Hustle the overway. That's why they follow me, huh? They think I know the way. Cause I took control of things. Balling the solo way. Um, because he was always the guy that I just thought was there as a rapper. I never really listened to what he had to say a lot, you know. Um, I've, I've known him for, you know, at least 10, 12 years, but I never really listened to his music. And it's funny how you you hear people talk about people, uh, and then you start to think, well, I didn't really get that. that I didn't get that from you know, being around that guy. I didn't, I didn't pick that up. And to hear NBA players and like rap music fans speak of him in such glowing terms, I was like, you know what? I need to listen to this guy, and and I and I, I hear his message, and and uh, and I, I can see why he was able to resonate with so many players, especially in the NBA. Uh, I mean, his his loss was um, felt, you know, um, in in a major way by these guys, and uh, and he would seem like a cool dude and. So I've sort of been listening to his music. Um, you know, I'm always um, listening to him and well, not, not him. I'm always listening to J. Cole and Kendrick. So those are my guys anyway. Uh, but uh, for the most part, I'm, I'm also, uh, I, I love listening to just old school R&B, um, you know, classics, going all the way back to the 60s with Sam Cooke and, you know, all the way up to the 70s with Marvin Gaye and Curtis Mayfield. So, that that that's that's sort of been my soundtrack for life, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, that that's sort of why I am. I'm, I'm an old man with an old soul, so I, I like to listen to the classics. Right on, Michael Lee. 
Hey, thank you so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's always good. It is always good. I mean, we're smarter for having spoken to you. And, uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, that's real. Hey, be, have a great Sunday. Yeah, you too, man. I ain't really trip on the credit. I just paid all of my dues. I just respected the game. Got my name all in the news. Tripping on all of my moves. Quote me on this, got a lot more to prove. Remember I came in this bitch. Fresh out the county with nothing to lose. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone the key paradise put up a parking lot i don't know how literally Joni mitchell meant her most famous lyric or if it was aimed simply as metaphor for what's lost in the pursuit of progress but we're seeing its meaning come alive in brutal fashion at san jose state university San Jose State, once known as Speed City, was home in the 1960s to the most legendary track and field team of the 20th century. That team included Tommy Smith, Lee Evans, and John Carlos, the Olympic medal winning icons of the 68 Olympics in Mexico City. Smith and Evans set world records in the 200 and 400 meters, and Smith and Carlos of course became iconic when they raised their fists on the 200 meter medal stand. The track where this team practiced Bud Winter Field on the South Campus should be embraced as hallowed ground, a national monument to athletic greatness and social uplift. But it was announced this week that Bud Winter Field will be paved so San Jose State can put up a parking lot. San Jose State Athletics Media Relations Director Lawrence Fan said in bloodless fashion, There were plans to see if a new track could be installed, but the greater need for San Jose State and San Jose State Athletics is a multi-level parking structure. I reached out to one of those icons of San Jose State, a person whose statue adorns the campus, John Carlos. To say he was dismayed is an understatement. He said, They are trying to dispose our history with the school. I'm sure down the line they're going to try to pull our statue down too. It's wrong, and it's been wrong, how they've treated our history for some time. It's worth noting that the statue, which depicts John Carlos and Tommy Smith with their fists aloft, was an initiative of the students on campus, not the administration. It's also worth noting that the track is used by young athletes who feel the sense of history. It's also worth noting that the track is used by young athletes who feel the sense of history with every stride. It's their paradise. I also spoke to Ron Davis, who is the former head track coach and a San Jose State University Hall of Famer. He pointed out that the timing of this move 
is awfully convenient taking place one year after 2018 saw the school undertake campus-wide commemorations of the 1968 Olympic team and the social importance of what they represented to the world. They reaped the goodwill and publicity fostered by the anniversary, and then after the confetti had been swept away, they went after the track, because there's no commodity more valuable to the modern university than real estate. Davis also said, What else can one expect from a university with no love for their track history or the individuals who made that history? Four-star track athletes from San Jose State University won more medals at the 1968 Olympics than many countries. Their NCAA National Championship cross-country team was the first integrated team to win that title. The removal of the track at San Jose State University is a step to erase the great history in track and field at the school. Who knows if the next step might be to remove the statue of John Carlos and Tommy Smith and replace it with another parking lot. Now, the parking lot also is a step towards erasing the history of the legendary coach of whom it's named after, Lloyd Bud Winter. Bud Winter was at San Jose State for 29 years, producing 27 Olympians and a staggering 102 All-Americans. As a former distance runner and teammate of Ron Davis said to him, another dagger in the heart, another sad day for the Spartans. I've been hearing rumors about this for a while, but I guess now it's official. From the long view, it's good that you are not there anymore. They don't deserve you or people like you. As Q-Tip from A Tribe Called Quest said 20 years ago, Joni Mitchell never lies. And tragically, he's right. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We've got two Just Stand Up awards this week. Stand up! The first goes to Notre Dame coach Muffet McGraw. Um, as of the recording of this podcast, Notre Dame is back in the NCAA Women's Finals, having defeated UConn uh, in the Final Four matchup. They are favored to win it all. And I just want to point out what Muffet McGraw recently said at... Uh, the press conference before the Final Four. It's a viral clip. It's amazing. This is what Muffet McGraw has to say. Muffet, I know you made some comments about hiring practices and what you do in the future. How important, as your career has gone on, and, and we lost past Summit, how seriously do you take being that voice? Did you know that the Equal Rights Amendment was introduced in 1967 and it still hasn't passed? We need... 38 states to agree that discrimination on the basis of sex is unconstitutional. We've had a record number of women running for office and winning, and still we have 23% of the House and 25% of the Senate. I'm getting tired of the novelty of the first American, the first female governor of this state, the first female African-American mayor of this city, 
When is it going to become the norm instead of the exception? How are these young women looking up and seeing someone that looks like them preparing them for the future? We don't have enough female role models. We don't have enough visible women leaders. We don't have enough women in power. Girls are socialized to know when they come out, gender roles are already set. Men run the world. Men have the power. Men make the decisions. It's always the men that is the stronger one. And when these girls are coming out, who are they looking up to to tell them that that's not the way it has to be? And where better to do that than in sports? All these millions of girls that play sports across the country, they could come out every day, and we're teaching them great things about life skills, but wouldn't it be great if we could teach them to watch how women lead? This is a path for you to take to get to the point where in this country we have 50% of women in power. We have less, less now, right now less than 5% of women are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. So yes, when you look at men's basketball and 99% of the jobs go to men, why shouldn't 100 or 99% of the jobs in women's basketball go to women? Maybe it's because we only have 10% women athletic directors in Division I. People hire people who look like them, and that's the problem. Thank you, Muffet McGraw. The other Just Stand Up Award, it's got to go to Russell Westbrook for going out on the court after the killing of his friend Nipsey Hussle and having a 20-point, 21-rebound, 20-assist performance, 20-20 and 20 in tribute to Nipsey Hussle. I think this is going to go down as legend, if not in official basketball history, at the very least behind the scenes. Uh, it was compared by uh, Nick Wright, who's a sports commentator, as the modern equivalent of Babe Ruth promising home runs to kids in the hospital and then knocking them out on request. Now let's explain this for a second. Getting a 20-20 and 20, first of all, only Wilt Chamberlain's ever done that before. So to have Russell Westbrook do it, that in and of itself, anytime you're starting a sentence with only Wilt Chamberlain has done this, you know you've done something particularly special. The other aspect of this uh, is that 20 plus 20 plus 20 is 60. And that's the significant number when you're talking about Nipsey Hussle because it represents the neighborhood in Crenshaw where he's from, the neighborhood where he was spending the last many years attempting to rebuild block by block, uh, trying to produce jobs and use his money to put it back into his community and make a better life for the people around him, which is one of the things that makes it so horrifically tragic uh, that he was cut down. And Russell Westbrook, though, doing that tribute, 2020 and 20, showing up at the arena wearing a shirt that says Crenshaw. Russell Westbrook, who's from Los Angeles. Russell Westbrook, who went to UCLA. It's just its own very special kind of Just Stand Up Award. So to Muffet McGraw and Russell Westbrook, thank you for standing up. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. I mean, I'm just throwing this right back into the administration of San Jose State University. Don't pave paradise and put up a parking lot. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Michael Lee for joining us. Thank you to everybody who's been supporting us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And everybody, we've got something extra on Patreon this week. We have an interview with me and the legendary hip-hop journalist, Davey D., 
talking about the legacy of Nipsey Hussle. If you like the podcast, please take some time to go to Apple or Stitcher or your podcast app of choice. Leave a little message, write a little something, give us a rating. All that stuff helps in a huge way. Uh, Thank you to The Nation Magazine, the sponsor of this podcast. For everybody out there listening, we are out of here. Stay frosty. Peace. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.